And so again, this ties into what we were just talking about. What is our reaction to unpleasant situations? Another sidebar, right? a, a, a daily practice. <coughs> just pay attention to what the mind's reaction is in moments of unpleasant situations. Right? Maybe you're with somebody who's being unpleasant. Maybe you see an unpleasant sight. Maybe it's the unpleasant thought of traffic or an unpleasant smell, or t- whatever, whatever situation. Really notice what the mind does, because that's a revealing moment. And then to explore <coughs> patience as a way of opening to that unpleasantness. And it has just a few different aspects, which I want to mentioned. The first and most obvious one, patience as acceptance. It's just that ability to be with things as they are. It's being willing to open to the difficulties. Another aspect of patience, I think, is forgiveness, which we don't necessarily associate those two. But The part of forgiveness, the element of forgiveness that I see is, is that element of it's okay, whatever that unpleasantness is, it's the forgiveness of allowing it to be there instead of being unforgiving of it, whatever it is. Another side of patience, which Suzuki Roshi pointed to, he called it, actually I want to read, I want to read something. I don't know the last time you read Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, uh, but I had occasion to, to reread it, you know, after many, many years. Good idea. <laughs> so this is from this is from Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. I've always said that you must be very patient if you want to understand Buddhism, but I have been looking for a better word than patience. Perhaps constancy is a better word. You must force yourself to be patient, but in constancy there is no particular effort involved. There is only the unchanging ability to accept things as they are. For people who have no idea of emptiness, This ability may appear to be patience, but patience can actually be non-acceptance. I think that's a very telling, you know, it's like enduring. And for people who have no experience of emptiness, it is often, that's what patience often is. Uh, People who know, even if only intuitively, the state of emptiness, always have opened the possibility of accepting things as they are. They can appreciate everything. In everything they do, even though it may be very difficult, they will always be able to dissolve their problems by constancy. And so that's that's a different flavor of patience and one, I think he really captured something there in terms of the constancy of being open to things as they are 
coming from our understanding of emptiness, emptiness of self. So we're not in opposition, we're not polarizing, we're not enduring. So this, the aspect of acceptance, of forgiveness, of constancy, just the last little piece on patience. Patience uh, as grace. And this was, uh, you know, the first summer at the Europa Institute in 1974. It was kind of the Buddhist Woodstock. Ramdas was there and Trungpa Rinpoche, and it was the first real gathering, a big gathering of Buddhist energy, in the Eastern energy in this country. And uh, that's where uh, kind of my whole teaching started. It was, it was an amazing summer, thousands of people. And, you know, Ramdas and Trungpa each had these huge classes of, you know, every, everybody basically would go. And so Ramdas would speak Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Trungpa would speak Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. Very different. I mean, Ramdas was teaching the Gita, love and light and grace of guru. And, and Trungpa was into, you know, basic sanity. You have to face your suffering or, you know, the real Buddhist rap. And so people were just going back and forth, back and forth. So one, one night somebody asked Trungpa, you know, we've been hearing all this stuff about grace of God as the, as the heart of the spiritual path. What does Buddhism have anything to say about grace? And Trungpa thought for a moment in you know, his, his usual brilliant way. Uh, he thought and then he said, in Buddhism, patience is grace. You know, and it was, just, it was just one of those moments when it opened up a whole other meaning of grace. You know, where we see that actually patience in the sense that Suzuki Roshi was using it, not patience as enduring, but patience as that constancy of openness. But that's how grace functions. In that openness, things happen, understandings emerge. Even to the grace of enlightenment. And one of the one of the lines that the Buddha used in the text, he said, patience leads to nibbana. You know, that's that's a powerful statement. That that quality of mind leads to the highest goal. So it's not just kind of a mechanism for getting by a little easier in the world. It's a powerful spiritual force. Uh, and the Dalai Lama was, in that paragraph in the book, he was pointing to how essential it is. Suzuki Roshi tied it in, the understanding of it, to the realization of emptiness. And the Buddha and Trungpa tying it to the highest grace, you know, the, the opening to enlightenment, to liberation all evolving around this quality. So I think it's worth working with that, and a lot of that book. I mean, uh, I don't know how many of you kind of have looked through it, but, you know, it's the Buddhist, um, it's the Dalai Lama's commentary on that text, the Bodhisattva, Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. Well, we're all, could use a good guide in that. you know, and a lot of a lot of the teaching is about this. It's about patience in the face of difficulty, in the face of suffering. 
Yeah. Exactly, it embodies it so beautifully. Yeah. So I think this probably is a good place to stop. Uh, see if you can remember at least at moments to uh, to maybe actually note seeing. You know, so with all the busyness in the kitchen and getting the food and so as not to get kind of your energy going out through the eye door to what you're doing, uh, getting the food, and, but really staying back in your body and just receiving. And I think you'll notice a big difference in the quality of your energy. It gets much less frenetic. You know, just stay softer and more mindful. So why don't we meet... Uh, why don't we meet about tw- uh, 25 to 3? about ten after two, uh, ten after one now. I guess I'll just say one, one other thing. That I kind of unilaterally extended the afternoon to five today. If those of you had other plans or need to leave it for, it's fine. Not, I won't be offended if you need to go. Okay. I think that the best thing we could do for the whole weekend would just be to sit together. Maybe next time (laughs) we'll just sit. of mind, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, the innate wakefulness, knowing capacity, ceaselessly responsive, that is when the mind is not contracted, using the metaphor of ice, when it's not frozen, then it's responsive to circumstances. From that place of emptiness of self, when we're in that place of emptiness of self, the natural responsiveness to situations is love and compassion. But then in the world we find ourselves in situations of suffering and we find that we're often not in a place of fluidity, that we have contracted, and so we're not responding with compassion. When we look at those places, when we investigate, we see that very often the reason for the contraction are different kinds of fears. And so we really want to look in our lives, in the specific circumstances of our lives, you know, when we come up against difficulty of one kind or another, whether it's within ourselves or suffering in the world, and we feel that contraction, that pulling back, so then that's a, that's a real place of investigation. So that should be the wake-up signal, that sense of pulling back. You know, and exploring the fears in the way we talked about and in the very nature of fear. And realizing that one of the keys in working with all forms of aversion, but fear being a major one, anger being the other, that in all forms of aversion, patience is the gateway. 
at that quality of patience in the ways we talked about. You know, patience as acceptance, as forgiveness, as constancy, as grace. That quality of openness that actually makes liberation possible. So all of that is available and actually uh, how to say that possibility is offered to us in times of difficulty. And so it's a real transformation of our way of understanding situations of suffering from being Rajan Chah really expressed it well. He said there are two kinds of suffering. Suffering that leads to more suffering and suffering that leads to the end of suffering. Now it's not the difference is not in the situation, it's in how we're relating to it. And so all of those qualities of patience is the way of transforming the suffering into the end of suffering, into freedom. And that's why that statement of the Buddha, patience leads to Nibbana, patience, patience leads to freedom. So when we're aware of all this, you know, how this is all operating in our lives, there's also ways of actively cultivating that quality of compassion. And I think that's just what I want to conclude with this afternoon, of how we can practice, cultivate, enhance uh, the compassion. And we want to see it from two sides. One, compassion as a relative practice, as something we really uh, undertaking to do. And the other, compassion as an expression, as an effortless expression of emptiness. And I think we can really approach this uh, from both sides. When you say let the rest of the aversion be there, meaning? Well, not, not the rest of the aversion. Then, then the sensation was there right, by right, itself. Right, right, right. Whereas the urgency right. was the aversion. Right. Is that the same thing you're talking about with patience? Um, patience yeah. Patience is the opposite of, is the opposite of urgency. Well, it, in the way you're using the word urgency now, yeah. that is <laughs> as aversion. <laughs> then it's the opposite. I don't think urgency is always aversion. Because I think there's a... One of the spiritual fuels is a sense of what's called spiritual urgency. You know, it's that 
this is a dramatic and maybe an extreme image, but one that's used in the in the text. You know, practice as if your hair is on fire. Because I have a bit of a problem with that. Right. That's the take. <laughs> Definitely. But I think a better word for that concept, maybe than urgency, which has a lot of connotations in English, uh, might be ardency. You know, because it kind of is that passionate engagement, but not with a sense of rushing or, or desperation. It's just a fullness of engagement. The ardency, ardency, that's my New York accent. <laughs> ardency. A <laughs> R D E N C Y. <laughs> I think ardency and patience, in the way we're talking about, are completely uh, compatible. So that's um, so. How to how to understand the development of compassion? The basis of it, as we were talking about this morning is letting things in rather than keeping them out. But compassion arises when we let the suffering in, because if we're not letting it in, if we're avoiding it or denying it or being apathetic to it or indifferent to it, clearly compassion for it, that, that wish to alleviate it, is not going to happen. So the first step is just that willingness to let it in. And again, we want to watch in our lives and I found this an incredibly revealing uh, practice is just to watch watch myself when I come face to face with different kinds of suffering and watch what my mind does. And I see I see a wide range. Sometimes I let it in, sometimes you know, I don't like to see it or I don't want to be with it. And it's to do that without judgment. It's not, it's for the sake of investigation of learning about ourselves and our habituated responses. As we let things in, I think the first step, the first step in compassion is the feeling of empathy. And I think empathy only happens when we slow down enough to actually be with somebody or or ourselves. So instead of rushing through life, rushing by, you know, and maybe acknowledging what we're seeing or being with in a superficial way, it's, it's like we take a breath and we just stop and are with that person, you know, fully, and, and we let them in. Just two stories about this, which we're revealing in very different ways. One goes, wait, when I first started teaching, you know, in the, like, in the 70s, there was one, there was one yogi who used to come who just drove me crazy. Kind of the behavior pattern was so abrasive and obnoxious and the energy was so difficult. And it was the kind of person 
I don't know, a 10-minute interview felt like two hours. <laughs> you know, and I was sitting there kind of defending myself. But you know, I was just, because it was so difficult. And this, this person was a regular yogi, <laughs> so I had a lot of practice. One day, something happened that really transformed it. That instead, because I was watching myself and I didn't like what I was doing, but <laughs> I was doing it. But then, in one interview, this person was there, and it's just like, I just relaxed into myself, and I actually opened my eyes and looked at this person. I just let them in. And as soon as I did that, as soon as I stopped defending against the difficult energy, and I opened my eyes and let them in, what was so obvious was the immense amount of suffering this person was in, and all of the behavior that had been so abrasive to me. It's like, oh, yeah, this person's in a lot of suffering. And it was amazing. It was like, in that instant, all of my resistance and fear and aversion turned into compassion. I didn't have to think about it. It was not any conscious decision. It was just from letting it in, from paying attention, from allowing myself that moment of empathy, you know, of actually being with them and feeling what they were feeling. So it was, it was really a tremendous lesson for me. From the other side of empathy, sort of being on the receiving end, uh, again, this was back in the, in the 70s, I went to visit um, Rumtek in Sikkim, his holiness, the seat of His Holiness Karmapa. Uh, and I hadn't planned, to, I had actually gone to see somebody else, uh, but he, he was residing and they asked me if I wanted kind of an audience with him, and I said, yeah, that would be great. And this was, this was I was very new to Tibetan Buddhism, you know, and I went, I didn't know how to do the proper Tibetan vows, so kind of went in and did my Burmese bows, which I'm sure to him looked really strange. But anyway, as I was sitting in front of him, and he was, I, I wasn't viewing him as my guru or anything, you know, so I didn't, I, I didn't come in with that kind of particular devotion. But he had that quality, which many great teachers do, of when you, or when I was in his presence, it felt like I was the most important being in the world. His attention was so complete and undivided and there. And that feeling of being seen and heard and held and felt was so amazingly powerful. You know, and sort of it pointed to a possibility of how we can actually be with people. And of course the Dalai Lama has that also. You know, even if you're with him for one minute in a long line of people, in that minute, He's really there. And so I feel that this feeling of empathy, which is the first step in compassion, comes when we are not rushing through the moment with somebody, but we actually land in the moment. You know, we're landing, we're connected. How are you? And we're really listening. <laughs> we're not, how are you? And we're off to the next thing in our minds. But empathy still is not compassion. 
So I think there's, there's a next step. I think it's the groundwork, the foundation. It actually allows us to feel what another person is feeling and being with them. But compassion, I think, takes it a step further, which is not only feeling what the other person is feeling, but actually the active motivation, the active motivation or wish to help alleviate the suffering. So it's not simply feeling another person's suffering, it's that feeling, how can I help? What can I do in this situation? And of course, I'm sure you're familiar with this phrase that Thich Nhat Hanh uses a lot, uh, compassion is a verb. And that really expresses it, that it's not simply a feeling, which is more empathy. That compassion is really the verb, or it's the motivation for the verb. You know, it moves us to act. So as we develop compassion, which this go back a little to define two terms. You know, we talked about bodhicitta a little bit, or maybe you're familiar with that. The, the absolute bodhicitta is emptiness. Relative bodhicitta is compassion. So as we practice this relative bodhicitta, compassion, and it's relative because it's dealing with the level of beings as opposed to aggregates. Like we're relating to one another as people, as individuals. We might even be so bold as to say as selves, understanding it conventionally and not, not taking it to be the, uh, the reality. As we're practicing compassion, as we're practicing this relative bodhicitta, it really involves us, and this is what involves us, in an active engagement in the world. So our practice is not simply being in the realm of empty phenomena flowing on, depersonalized, although we understand that level and are drawing the wisdom from it, but seeing the connection and seeing that compassion is the expression of that emptiness, because we're not contracted in into self, we're not contracted in nice, it's allowing for the responsiveness. This was a great, a great turning point for me in my practice. I was doing a retreat with Miyoshi Kenyon Petre, who's also one of the Dzogchen, great Dzogchen teacher. And he was giving this talk on Bodhijitta. And somehow he made this connection, or made it in such a way that I really got it in a, in a much deeper way than I had, of seeing that compassion is the expression of emptiness, that relative bodhicitta is the expression of the absolute. And that opened up a whole new energy for the understanding of it, because instead of feeling that there was someone here, namely me, who had to be compassionate for the suffering of the world, which just seemed, as we were talking a little yesterday, too huge to shoulder, you know, just impossible. 
But as I saw, and as he was explaining, that the compassion flows naturally from emptiness, from emptiness of self. Then it just opened, it's like opened the energy channel. And the more selfless one becomes, the more compassion manifests quite naturally. And it's not resting on the shoulders of the self. It's instructive, I think, and inspiring just to look about in the world and see this energy of compassion manifesting in so many different ways. Because we so many examples of people, both known and not known, who just have that ability, that willingness, that openness to suffering and responding to it. You know, really have that feeling of empathy, feeling for others, take it a step further to take action. And we could look at just either in our own lives or ourselves and our own immediate lives, how this happens kind of in small, just in small, unregarded ways. You know, and to see that it can be practiced in that way. Just being kind to somebody. You know, being a little kinder in our relationships. Being generous. Being generous to people that are difficult for us. You know, we're in a difficult situation. Can we step out of our averse, aversiveness, you know, or impatience or ill will, and actually use that situation to develop empathy and compassion and generosity? Beside opening one's heart, this is probably a bad thing to say, so <laughs> a little. So take it with a grain of salt. Uh, it's also very strategic in terms of the relationship. Not that that should necessarily be the motive, but it is amazing how an act of generosity with somebody that we're having difficulty with can defuse. It changes the nature of the relationship because we've stepped out of the pattern. You know? And so there are ways to practice it in very day-to-day, -day small ways. Other times, we see this compassion, this willingness to open to suffering, to feel it, to feel empathetic, and then to take action. Sometimes it's hugely heroic, you know, where people really put themselves out in situations of danger, of hardship, where they feel the suffering so strongly and feel that empathy and the compassion that they are really moved to do very heroic things. And I mean, I mean you know the same, the same examples that I'm thinking of and probably more, but recently I, I was watching a documentary uh, on the life of Martin Luther King, Jr. Of course, I had lived through it, you know, in, in those times, but I I really hadn't tuned into the magnitude of what he did and what he faced. The documentary, it showed that footage of um, sort of the work he was doing in Chicago and then in Memphis, you know, where he was killed. And the amount of hatred that was coming towards him, 
you know, from, from the forces of real bigotry and this immense, not only hatred, but violence. And somehow he was able to maintain this amazing open-heartedness you know, in the face of that. And it was incredibly inspiring to see that possibility, that there was a genuine compassion you know, and love for the whole situation. And of course in Memphis the same thing, and uh, you know, went down to aid in the strikers and then was killed. And this force of compassion can really um, be an amazing force for good in the world, uh, and a tremendous expression of selflessness. There's one story, I, I don't know whether you're familiar with this, it's, it's one of my favorite Gandhi stories. Uh, you know, in 1947-48, when India became, inde India became independent from Britain, uh, there was the partition of India and Pakistan separating, trying to separate the Hindus and Muslims. Uh, that whole thing was a total disaster, total disaster. And after the partition, in the months following, there was massive, massive bloodshed, you know, as the Muslims who had been living in India were trying to move to Pak what became Pakistan, the Hindus in Pakistan trying to move to what became India. And so, huge amount of violence and bloodshed. The Indian government sent, I don't know, thousands, tens of thousands of troops to the Punjab to try to quell the violence. Gandhi, by himself, went to Calcutta to West Bengal, where there was likewise the same violence. And Gandhi undertook this fast, and he said that he would fast to death unless people stopped fighting, unless people put down his arms. And the force of his purity of motivation and the, the moral authority that came from that, what 10,000 troops in the Punjab couldn't do, Gandhi alone did in West Bengal. You know, when I read that, I was just, <laughs> tears come to mind. It was so incredibly inspiring to see the possibility of compassionate action when it's coming from a really pure place, and the motivation is pure. So clearly, we're not, we're not all in that situation or have that capacity necessarily, but we all have some capacity and we're all in some situation, you know, where we can really begin to allow ourselves to let the suffering in, to feel it, to have that sense of empathy grow, and then to take the next step of what can I do? You know, how can I help in this situation? So I see this as really being the practice. Sitting with 
my suffering or somebody else and simply allowing myself to be present for all the tidal waves of it. So uh, can you address that just a little bit, how to watch that, what thoughts you have about watching that edge? Uh, I, think, I think that edge, it's just better than saying everything rests on the tip of motivation. That is such a powerful, it's very challenging, subtle, difficult to sort out because we often have conflicting motivations or a series of conflicting ones. But if it's in one's mind to practice watching motivation, not only in situations like that, motivation behind speech, motivation behind whatever we do, when that is a real practice for us, we get a lot better at sussing out what it is that's going on, and we begin to see the, the different qualities which can be moving or imbuing that motivation. So, for example, and this is an interesting point about compassion, the near enemy of compassion is sorrow. Now, it's interesting because, again, it's, they can be close. You know, where you feel sorrow for the suffering, you feel compassion for the suffering. But what characterizes or distinguishes the two, and again, this is very subtle, it really takes some wise seeing, In sorrow, in the way that I'm using the term, other people might use it differently, in sorrow there's aversion to the suffering. In compassion there's no aversion. Now that's interesting. To be with suffering without aversion and to allow the wish to alleviate it to arise. But it's not coming from aversion. It's coming from compassion. <laughs> for the suffering of the being, not aversion to the suffering. So this, there's a tremendous delicacy as we begin to really examine motivations, you know, and a lot of careful distinctions. It's sort of the difference just on, in some way, a slightly more obvious level, but also can get quite confused is the difference between love and attachment. You know, they get confused a lot. But they're different. They're really different. How do we see the difference? <laughs> by, by paying attention. Mm -hmm. you know. So this, I mean, I think, just in that situation you asked, I would look to motivation, I would look to see whether there's aversion to the suffering or there's acceptance of the suffering. Okay. And when there's no aversion to the suffering, see if you can really distinguish or recognize that place of feeling the suffering of the other and wishing to alleviate it out of compassion, not out of aversion. So that all of this takes a lot of practice. It's easy to say these words, <laughs> you know, but 
we can all do this. It's just, it's just being clear enough about what we're doing. This practice of paying attention to motivation, I think, is just... It's everything. It's just everything. Because no matter what we do, and the Dalai Lama speaks about this a lot, and I, I so appreciate it. When the motivation is pure, and this goes back to the question this morning about results, when the motivation is pure, the results are irrelevant. They'll be what they are, depending on conditions. When the motivation is impure, it's like if we're facing in the wrong direction, every step we take takes us further in that wrong direction. You know, and so where we start and the direction that we're going in is everything. And again, it's to look at this, we all have a lot of mixed motivations. And so, What I mean is, and maybe that's, maybe that was a little too strong, you know, or not. But what I mean is, um, that in some way the assessment of the skill or unskill of the act is not dependent on the results. It's dependent on the motivation. Because the results, so many different causes and conditions come into play that are out of one's control. But so often people assess their self-worth, and this is what the Dalai Lama was pointing at. It's their whole assessment of their value and self-worth is on the result rather than on their motivation of heart. And he was pointing out, <laughs> we do the best we can and with the purest motivation, then what happens, happens, but the real, the real assessment should be of the motivation. What that means is you can't do things to get something, because you never know if you are going to get it, so you only can do things to give. Then we know whatever happens, happens. Mm -hmm. Right. 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 Just give an example, sorry, or a situation. Wow. All 
I mean, as I understood what Noel meant, it was not, and sort of what I'm intuiting mm-hmm. you meant, that it wasn't so much an ignoring, for example, of one's own needs in a situation, but I, as I understood it, it had more to do with whatever we do, we're doing from a motivation, for example, of generosity or compassion rather than what we get out of the situation. But it has yeah. to do with generosity. Yes, like yes, 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 that's included. That's included in it. Yeah. I didn't do it yet. Yeah. I always had a totally unsure feeling. Right, right, right. No, it's, it's both. And, I mean, Here's just where it gets really interesting. On the relative level, the love, the compassion, the generosity is for all beings of whom we are one. On the, on the absolute level, there's no one there. It's coming from a selfless place. And so it's just the compassion expression of emptiness. With, with that level automatically, or it's, it's in a different domain or a different, a different way. I think that this, this ties in very much in the whole Buddhist scheme of things to understanding the balance of compassion and equanimity. You know, and that's why equanimity is seen really as the basis for all the others. It's like equanimity is the basis for love, for compassion, for sympathetic joy. So there's that sense of openness, of impartiality, of spaciousness. It's not indifference. And then out of that, appropriate response is there, and that appropriate response can be anything. There's no, there's no prescription for what the compassionate action should be. In that place of not acting, compassion is more feeling than acting. Right, although I, I think in a so way it's getting some... Exactly. Action. I think it's getting yeah, more semantic because that, that d- does become the action. Okay, not only does compassion have to be balanced by equanimity, 
it also needs to be balanced by wisdom. Because the wisdom component in compassionate response assesses what actually is a skillful response. Because we can have a lot of compassion if we don't have much wisdom. We can feel the compassion and act on it and do things that are really inappropriate. You know, which doesn't messes things up even more. So the wisdom of the of clear seeing and it's interesting just to see both in ourselves and in you know in the world and in the Buddhist time the different manifestations of compassion and action sometimes it's kind of very obviously compassionate and sometimes it's what you know I think I don't know the Trungpa matter coined this phrase or not, but wrathful compassion, you know, where really very strong action is needed. There's one story of uh, the Buddha's, you know, the charioteer who uh, drove him from the palace when he renounced the world and went off to the forest. So they had grown up together, you know, with these really close, close friends. And then the Siddhartha goes off and into the woods and practices and becomes a Buddha. So like with many of his former associates, this charioteer, his name was Chana, he also became a monk. But he was sort of playing on his past friendship of the Buddha, so he was a really not a very together monk. You know, he didn't follow the rules and he was pretty sloppy. Because he thought, you know, I knew the Buddha when. You know, and it would be okay. <laughs> so finally, <laughs> in the very last or one of the last acts the Buddha did before he died he kind of gave a, his order to the, whole, to the whole Sangha nobody should talk to Chana nobody should have anything to do with Chana I mean can you that's pretty heavy. Kind of one of the last acts the Buddha says is, nobody speaks to that guy. The Buddha died. Chana was so filled with remorse. I mean, he, he saw it. Took that to make him see. He practiced. He became an arhat. As all these stories end. But it's it, and often when you read the texts. The Buddha often uses pretty harsh, or at times uses pretty harsh language to people, and he says, "You fool! You know why are you doing that?" Presumably, it's coming from a place of compassion. That's what's needed, you know. Or he he could see that that's what was needed to help wake people up. So, I don't think we want to sentimentalize compa- compassion. It takes wisdom to see what is the compassionate action in this situation. But it's also not to rationalize our own unskillful behavior in the name of wrathful compassion. So again, it really comes back to seeing our motivation. Is it really pure? Is it really compassion? Or is it just our own aversion coming out? Uh, But when we see it in this way, then there's a wide range of skillful means. And one of the things that I think is particularly helpful in our society, which is so 
I don't know if it's our society, or just us, <laughs> but so judgmental about almost everything. And I've seen in spiritual circles, very often there's this, people create this hierarchy of compassionate action one way or another. You know, oh, this person is out, whatever, doing whatever they're doing. They're really engaged in the world and somebody else is, you know, who may be meditating, is not, com- is not really compassionate. And just the other way around. Somebody who's really just a yogi and developing what they feel is real purity of motivation, you know, think, oh, those people out in the world are wasting their time, you know. I think getting rid of all of that is so helpful. And to see that there is no hierarchy of compassion in action. Compassion arises in the limitless field of suffering, of human suffering and any engagement with it, we each find our own way, we have our own interests, we have our own capabilities, our capacities. And it just it creates a very uh, great open-heartedness when we hold it in that way. just one one more little theme to talk about and that is that there have been historically two major approaches to the development of compassion and compassionate action and Mostly, they fight with each other, you know, and oppose each other. I think recognizing what they are and seeing that they're not in opposition, that they're actually two elements of each other, is really helpful. From the one side, it's understanding that we need to work on ourselves before we can go out and be effective in the world. To some extent, we need to get ourselves together. And this principle, every time we get on a plane, this principle is reinforced. When they make the announcement, you know, in case of loss of air cabin pressure, the oxygen mask will come down. Put on your own before you assist someone else. That's the principle. You know, if you try to assist somebody before you put on your own, it's going to probably end up in a lot of chaos. You put your own on, then you're in a position to actually help a lot of people. So I think we need to take this to heart. There's some great wisdom in that. And the Buddha talked about it in in the example of, you know, two people kind of drowning in the mud, being pulled down in the mud. They try to help each other. They just sink in deeper, if one person does some work to at least get a foot on solid ground, it's easier then to help the other one. So it's not to ignore the importance 
for the manifestation of compassion in the world. It's not to ignore the importance of putting on putting on the oxygen mask, getting a foot on solid ground, of really establishing some place of understanding and stability. Otherwise, even though the motivation is compassion, all we might be contributing is confusion. Uh, So this is one side that I think is really important. The other side, the other perspective, is the perspective of putting others before yourself, treating others as being more important than yourself. And that's a lot of what's in Shantideva in the book. And the Dalai Lama is a shining example of that path, you know, where the practice is one of seeing others as being more important than oneself and practicing compassionate action out of that place. There's in, in that book, and it, it's sort of the, the ideal of that perspective are some verses in the, the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. It's a series of verses which is called the Seven-Branched Prayer. I'm not sure. I'll, I'll read some of it. Because it embodies that perspective. This is the end of side one. Please turn the tape over at this point to play side two. You know that this is our practice. And it's it's quite amazing said, like the earth and the pervading elements, enduring like the sky itself endures, for boundless multitudes of living beings, may I be their ground and sustenance. For everything that lives as far as the limits of the sky, may I provide their livelihood and nourishment until they pass beyond the bonds of suffering. For all those ailing in the world until their every sickness has been healed, May I myself become for them the doctor, nurse, the medicine itself. Raining down a flood of food and drink, may I dispel the ills of thirst and famine. And in the ages marked by scarcity and want, may I myself appear as drink and sustenance. For sentient beings, those poor and destitute, may I become a plentiful treasure and lie before them closely in their reach a varied source of all that they might need. My body, thus, and all my goods besides, and all my merits gained and to be gained, I give them all away, withholding nothing, to bring about the benefit of beings. That's quite an aspiration. It's called the seven-branched prayer. Seven-branch. My body, thus, and all my goods besides, and all my merits gained and to be gained, I give them all away, withholding nothing to bring about the benefit of beings. Now, in one sense, it's possible to get completely overwhelmed by that. (laughs) You know, this is just impossible. (laughs) (laughs) On the other hand, 
to be inspired by the possibility you know, of that as an aspiration. I think we can follow the guidelines of the Dalai Lama and in, actually it's in this book. He says someplace, I can't pretend to actually practice bodhicitta, but deep in my heart I realize how valuable it is. That is all. So that's the Dalai Lama. I mean, bodhicitta is vast. This is vast. And so I don't think it's a question of feeling bad that we don't live up to it, but rather taking inspiration from the possibility of opening in that direction. And even in very small ways does that become a guiding principle. Now, each of these sides has a danger, I think, and that's why I think they balance each other. The first side of really realizing that we need to establish some strength and stability and purity within ourselves before we can do much in the world, if that gets overemphasized, our practice can get a little narrowly focused. We just start focusing so much inwardly that we lose that connection of engagement with the world. If we get too lost in the other side of always putting others before oneself, there's a, I think there's a real danger of codependence there, you know, where we're not taking care of ourselves and we're always putting others before one in an unhealthy way, you know, in a neurotic in way. When we hold both, I've just found an incredibly wise balance between them. We practice ourselves with the motivation that our very practice be for the benefit of all. So we're setting that motivation even as we're doing the work on ourselves. And so we put it in the widest context. But we're not doing it for ourselves alone. We're practicing for the benefit of all. And from the other side, when we practice this seven-branch prayer, this aspect of bodhicitta, putting others before oneself, we realize that that is in fact a purification of ourselves. And so we're honoring what's happening within us even as we're doing that. And so in that way, I think we draw on the strength from each side and mitigate the dangers of each side. Any comments about all this? Thoughts or questions?
outside work. And what comes up as I review that over this weekend is that so much of the out there Good idea. <laughs> Where I'm not exposing myself to that, or I'm not exposing the world to me. I, th I think for all of us, just as balancing the two sides that I talked about, what you're talking about is just that in terms of engagement in the world, taking care of oneself. It just needs the balance. And, you know, we go back and forth in finding what the right balance is. I'm a firm believer in the amazing value of significant retreat time each year. And what that means for each one of you will be different, but whether it's 10 days or several 10-day retreats or a month course or three months, you know, you, you find your own. But the regularity of going in and having that time just... It keeps us honest. You know, it does. And there was a yogi, this was a few years ago, it was a Dutch yogi who was doing the three-month course. And we had been talking about kind of the nature of mind and the nature of awareness. And he was coming into an interview and talking about you know, his understanding. I said, well, what, for you, what most characterizes that, that nature of mind? Uh, and I came up with such a surprising answer, although it, it was beautiful. Uh, he said, honesty. Because it's like the nature of the mind is that mirror-like wisdom where we just see what's there. So we get a very honest view at ourselves, you know, because we're not distracted. It's like that mirror, which is just seeing all the defilements and all the mix of motivations and all the wholesome things. And without that, it's, it's like a, it's like bathing in honesty, you know, and I just see it as so important, given the kind or the level of distraction that exists in our world and the speed at which we live our lives. Uh, without it, it's hard. It's hard enough with it. <laughs> you know, we're trying to do something. In a way, I see it as a huge experiment in terms of whether as lay people living, engaged in the world, it is actually possible to come to a genuine place of freedom. I mean, the Buddha certainly, I mean, he was a whole monastic tradition. He said, you know, you really want to do this, go off and become a monk or a nun. Well, we're not doing that. And there is a level of commitment of lay people, you know, 
in the West who are practicing seriously with liberation, awakening as a goal. But it's not an easy undertaking, I think, to minimize the effort and commitment that's needed is a big mistake. You know, this is a big thing. And so if we're really committed to that, we need to see our lives and make choices in our lives. And they're not going to all be the same choice. You know, we will do it in different ways and different rhythms. But... But don't you think there are degrees of both relative and, and maybe not absolute um, liberation? That, because I heard absolute liberation is when you're enlightened. But I think in relative liberation, I mean, I just find in my life how much freer oh. I am since I started to practice. I mean, huh? I'm totally liberated now compared to what I was 10 years ago. <laughs> right. You know? No, absolutely. That's such a joy to yeah. But as one of my teachers said, and I, I, I share this deeply, why not aim for the highest? Yeah, but I think one does aim for the huh? highest. But I think when you were talking about the monastics, you know, giving up everything... Yeah, no, I wasn't, sugge- I wasn't suggesting... That that's huh? the sort of ultimate... Thing to do. I mean, no, I mean, even 10 years from yeah. now, I've, I've, I've increased my liberation as much as I have in the past 10 years. You know, I'll be that much happier. Yes, yes. And if one day I'm an enlightened being, well, of course, that'll be wonderful. But I think mm. living in our relative world, we, we can mm. see those increments. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, here I am sitting as a layperson, I'm not a monk. Yes, um, sharing, sharing this this boat, you know, that we're all on. It's just it was like by way of encouraging times of uh, retreat from the world, as well as engagement with the world, and just seeing that those times I feel are really important as part of the balance. Yeah. be good to do like 20 minutes of walking and just again to kind of get back into our bodies and then come back and we'll do like a a last 10 minutes of 15 minutes of wind up is there anybody who has not said much over the weekend would like to make any comments or questions I ran into some German Catholics, and so I was 
I'm in, you know, parking lot running around me. Fine, no reaction. Then later on, saying walk, they're out on the beach and they're walking down. Now I have fear. I notice the rise and I notice the rest of the bat. And then I notice sort of the edges are sharp, softer and it's like there is my fear. What am I going to do? Then I know anger. Why don't those people <laughs> leave under that? Sharper, much sharper. And also, um, that space of not knowing. Like, real aversion, like, I do not want to go through and confront this fear. This is a different, you know, this is, but I'm still, this is all stuff that's going on. So it's just so interesting to watch that mm -hmm. space and then to notice that I moved back. I moved to what I thought was higher ground, and then they came charging over. And and in the, the the reality, of course, was much less than the anticipation. Right. Much, much less. The what is, what is, is there was another dog behind me and it all turned into this joke and I yelled at those people, you know, <laughs> call your dogs. <laughs> and they said, They're friendly. <laughs> I go, That's not friendly. And it was just one of those things where it was just okay. Immediacy of the action, but the big thing was the difference. Mm -hmm. that, that so, my question is in that space of fear, I mean, I look at fear as two things. One is the imaginary, but also there's a perceived reality. The first time there wasn't any, the second time, I don't want these dogs charging me again, so that's the fear. So the difference between imagined fear and yet there is the imagined fear of what I'm anticipating. So I still think there are two types of fear. There's a real fear, which is what the body suddenly is exposed to, and that there's the possibility of so the idea to get out of danger and then not walk into it like a fool. <laughs> and then the other is all of this yeah. Yeah. Even though I'm sure these dogs were friendly. <laughs> right. I just, the, the one little piece in there that kind of caught my interest was uh, the anger coming out of the fear. And really, uh, as I was hearing it, it seemed to me that the anger came out of the non-acceptance of the fear. In other words, because the fear is unpleasant. The fear right. is an unpleasant state, and we don't like that. Right. And so, because of not liking the fear, that condition, then the angle, you get your dogs on the leash. And mm -hmm. So it could be interesting. Uh -huh. Yeah. It's liking, because anger is more action and reaction, so it has sharper. The, the fear felt uncomfortable because it's a sort of Wimpy. Right, right. <laughs> Wimpy diffuse, not right. knowing what to do. Right, but I, I was just wondering what if, in, if we could get to a place of it's okay feeling the fear. It's okay. This, this feeling is okay. And then taking appropriate action, but coming from a place of acceptance of the fear, might have communicated to those people could you get your dogs on the leash, please? Not coming from, not being an expression of anger, right. 
but just being an expression of a skillful response. Well, in fact, though, I thought it was skillful at the time because at the time I yelled, that dogs were charging him. So I thought that that was actually yeah. pretty... Uh, that really wasn't anger. The anger okay. before was the thought. Yeah, that, that's, that that's what I meant, yes. Right. Yes. Yes, that, that the angry thoughts right. seem to me to come from aversion absolutely. to feeling the fear. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and that's just an interesting place and right. to, to see the difference. Very, different, yeah. very uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the great, the great challenge of working with difficult emotions is before we act to come to a place of acceptance of them so we're not acting out of aversion. We're acting from a place of wisdom. Uh, My question, I guess, is then, is anger also seems like so tied into fear? Anger doesn't seem like it's pure anger. It's a fear component to it. So if you handle it skillfully, are you saying that this is still anger, but it is more skillfully handled? No, I was saying that anger and fear are related because they're both forms of aversion. But as the fear is coming up in a situation, if there's an ex- if we can come to a place, and sometimes it's, sometimes it's quick, sometimes it takes a process, right. but we get to that place, oh, this is okay, I can feel, the fear's okay, then it does not necessarily, it doesn't lead to a response of anger in response to the situation. Then, based on the acceptance of the fear, then we take the appropriate response, getting to high ground, asking the people to, you know, leash their dogs, whatever it is, but it's not coming from a, a place of anger. Right. Or even the thoughts in the mind. Right. right. I mean, a big, in more, as I was saying, in, you know, when I was working in that fear stage, a major change happened when I really got to a place of accepting the fear. You know. Yeah. It's hard. It, it was hard, but in that moment of acceptance, and I, I'm sure you've heard me say this, it, in the time of working with it, I had been noting, 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 you know, I still felt locked in. And then at a certain point when my mind said, if this fear is here for the rest of my life, it's okay. And I, I was actually getting there for that. The whole thing, on the whole thing, which I, which had been gripping me for days, it's here for the rest of my life. It's okay. That's where I got the "it's okay" mantra. <laughs> it was from that. So it, it's an interesting place to work. I just want to get first see if people who have not been asking have. Okay. Uh, I hope it's okay for me to <laughs> <laughs> you come a long way. 
That's great. I think the quality of precision, especially in language, really helps. Because sometimes we just use words and we're not quite clear what's meant by them, you know, to, sort of to, to hone it down. Uh, I would think it certainly helped me a lot. Uh, Upandita was a great, I mean, he was such a taskmaster, <laughs> you know, for precision. Uh, and so it really was a great training. Just in that in that vein, something that didn't really go into a lot, but as a way of freeing oneself in times of uh, distress, one piece, it's not the only one, but one big piece is often recognizing clearly what is going on. I'll just give you an example. Uh, at one point I was sitting and I was uh, just lost in sadness. I was just drowning in sadness. And I'm noting sadness, 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 sadness. And still lost, still drowning. This was going on and on and on. So whenever I get caught, whenever I feel caught, it really piques my interest. You know, I wanted what is going on here. And so I looked more carefully. I just, well, what is this? And I saw that it wasn't sadness. It was unhappiness. Now, they're close, but they're different. It's a different feeling. As soon as I got what it was, and I don't, I don't, I'm not suggesting that we do this all the time with every single thing that's arising, but I found it particularly helpful when we feel caught in something. And one of the reasons may be that we're not actually perceiving it correctly. whatever it is. So I feel like I'm just letting it be. 
and I feel like that's not the correct, you, you know, and, and this is what goes to my mind as I'm in this anger or in impatience. Right. So I'm wondering if this little bell can go off when I'm just enduring something and when I have, what, what is true patience to you? Mm-hmm. Or, or, or is there some kind of mm-hmm. well, I, easy? Well, <laughs> I, I don't know, I kind of saw a few different things in your comment. Yeah. One has to do with distinguishing what we could call true patience from enduring. I think there is an easy signal. Uh, because I think there's, uh, it's quite different in the body. You know, when we're enduring something, there's a tightness in the body. It's like, and when we're really accepting, there's an ease. So I would just check out, how, check out in your body, and that's going to tell you which it is. It's sort of the difference between moving quickly and rushing. You know, it's very different. You can move quickly, being totally embodied and present, or it can be moving quickly and that sense of toppling forward, you know, and, and feels completely different. So the body reveals a lot. So that, that was one aspect. Didn't right. But another aspect has to do with sort of a deep-seated story or belief or habit that we need anger to motivate us to get things done. And maybe it is the habit. You know, maybe that's, that's how you've worked. Um, there is a, there is, you know, with all, with all the emotions, there's a positive and negative side. The, the positive side of anger is clear seeing. Now, this, this, this is kind of a brief footnote. You know the three personality types in Buddhism, the greedy type, angry type, deluded type? Well, each one has a positive side. For the greedy type, it's faith. For the deluded type, it's equanimity. For the angry, aversive type, it's discriminating wisdom. Because it's that energy of anger, when it's in a positive way, it's just seeing clearly. So in that moment of you see the shelf, if you can remember, if you can take the positive side of that energy, the clear seeing side, and work from that place rather than from the negative side of that energy, which is the anger. So then you're, you're enhancing, you know, or, or you're changing the quality of your motivation, but using the power of the clear seeing. Uh, and I think for all of us, it's transmuting. You know, we each, we each are predominant in one of the others, one or another of those. So it's transmuting the negative side, but using the very energy in a positive way. Uh, and the only less that I had was I would watch to see uh, there's something in there it's, it's coming It has to do with uh, a 
a wise assessment of the importance of the thing to be done. And it may be that it's fine having the shelf unstraightened up. Whereas other things have a greater importance to act on. And it may be that the impatience or the self-assessment is coming because of you're giving equal importance to everything. You know, and maybe that is an impeccable way of living, but <laughs> somehow it feels a little inflexible. Do you follow what I mean? And so in, in different life situations, it's kind of prioritizing importance of things. I'm just expanding in my mind, you know, anger, core anger can be the underlying motivation of a great person, like a Martin Luther King, straightening up the shelf of America, the racist shelf. Yeah, but he wasn't I mean, doing it out of anger, driven. that's the thing. That, that's what's so yeah. remarkable about him. And so how do you hold on to the, whatever the word is? Clear seeing. The clear seeing. Yeah. I guess that's what I want to do. Hold on to the yeah, clear yeah, seeing. Yeah, no, absolutely. Without letting go of that as well. Yeah. Well, I think, I think it's really a trusting, because people, people often feel that if they let, let go of the anger, they'll lose the clear seeing. And that's, I think that's just a false belief. And as we let go of the anger, that clear seeing is still there. And it's, it's learning to trust that. You don't need the anger. I've been discriminating with them all along. <laughs> <laughs> Underneath. Equanimity. Okay, it's getting a little late. Just kind of to wrap, to wrap it. Uh -huh. No, no, not needing motivation. I, needing anger to get things done. No, 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 That that anger might be the habit, his habit of motivation, but can, doesn't have to be anger. It can be clear seeing, you know, without the anger. Because basically, and again, t t kind of tuning into your body. There's a price. You know, if the energy of anger is a burning, it's, it's a tightening, it's a contraction. And it's not to get angry at the anger, because that's, you know, it's to soften behind that as the way of letting go, and then see there's another place to act from. The Dalai, I don't know if you've looked at this book. The Dalai Lama talks a lot about working with anger, you know, in this, you know, in the, and I think it's, it's a very, wise counterbalance to sort of a cultural value that exalts anger, you know, and which has come about out of a reaction to something that was unskillful, which is suppressing it, you know, and so you can see where that's come from. but. 
both extremes, I think, are not helpful. Neither the suppression nor the habit of expression, that there's a way of opening to it, so we're not suppressing it, we're feeling it, we're letting it wash through and not acting on it. And so again, there's that great middle way of understanding. Okay, so... <laughs> I think everything we've talked about you know, can be held in one really uh, large and beautiful and inspiring context, which is that of bodhicitta. Uh, Tilku Orgin, who was another one of the great uh, Dzogchen teachers, he said, relative bodhicitta is compassion. Absolute bodhicitta is emptiness. When the two of these are present, enlightenment is unavoidable. <laughs> and so just as a framework for our lives, the development of both the relative and absolute aspects of bodhicitta, the flavor of it all, whether from the relative point of view of compassion or the absolute point of view of emptiness, is the understanding that our life and our practice can be lived and done not for ourselves alone. That it's that understanding of that motivation that our practice and our lives be for the benefit and welfare of all. And putting that right at the beginning, not to seeing it simply as the end result, but really working with that as the motivation for our practice and what we do in our lives. And again, to reiterate, to repeat the Dalai Lama's phrase, I can't really pretend to practice bodhicitta, but deep inside I realize how valuable it is. So it's not, it's to be really humble with this. This is huge. This aspiration that our life and our practice be for the benefit of all. And so I think we want to see it as planting the seed and there'll be many, many times in our lives when we're not acting from that place. But if we have planted that seed, that itself acts as an illumination of the times when we're not acting from it. You know, it's like a reference point that we come back to. And when it illuminates times when we're not coming from that place, it just opens the possibility of making other choices because we're seeing it. But this is, I see just as you know, a huge and profound and deep and vast practice. But we plant the seed. So I'll just close with uh, some, some quote that I uh, mentioned in my talk the other night. One of, one of my uh, very favorite American Maybe I'll read it. I may have to paraphrase it. Paraphrase. 
is from Thoreau, who is just really wonderful. If you, if you haven't read Thoreau recently, he's really great. And it's just, it's a great wisdom and a great understanding. Uh, and he was talking about the power of a seed. You know, and when you think about a seed, it really is remarkable. You know, this tiny, tiny thing contains within it something much larger, much greater. And so he was, he was talking about realizing that, I mean, this is a rough paraphrase, uh, The thing, the things that nothing is to be expected where no seed is present. But he said, "Give me a seed or plant a seed, and I'm prepared to expect wonders." Yeah, and it was just such a beautiful, you know. When you plant a seed, I'm prepared to expect wonders, and I just relate that so much to the seed of bodhicitta. You know, if the wonder comes of a seed of a great tree or a being, a human being, even greater than all of that is the seed of bodhicitta, which just flowers in so many amazing ways. And so we plant it, and we water it, and we nurture it, and we just let it unfold. Why don't we just sit for a few minutes? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.